Greek and Early Christian Novels, Part 1, by T. R. Glover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greek and Early Christian Novels Alare mu tode iperke atrekeos katalexon ope apep larces tekeas dinas ikeo choras Odyssey eight five seven two No study of the fourth century would be complete which did not in some degree take account of its fiction, yet to deal with it all and with precision would be an extremely difficult task. To begin, a good story, and every reader has his own idea of what is a good story, a story then that appeals to a large number of readers will probably be spread abroad not merely in abundance of copies but in various languages. It will be translated from one tongue to another, and as it travels it will undergo alterations. Passages will be added and others will be omitted. Eventually, when criticism takes the much-travelled story into consideration, widely differing recensions of it are found, and it is sometimes no easy matter to say which is the original form. Has it been expanded by a Syrian translator or cut down by a Greek? Many of the tales with which we have to deal describe an almost entirely artificial world, and offer nothing beyond their style as a guide to the critic who will date them, and in some cases this is hardly any help at all, so that a novel like that of Longus is loosely dated as of the 2nd to the 4th century. Others conceal the date of their creation of set purpose and flaunt a false one, and though the falsehood may be readily detected, the true date can often only be determined by long and tiresome critical processes, with the result that critics come to very different conclusions. If, however, we bear in mind that while the dates of the first appearances of the particular books to which we have to refer are in many cases highly conjectural, these works yet represent the popular taste for long after as well as before the period with which we are dealing, and that their kind, if not themselves, has profoundly influenced actual productions of our period, we may without material error draw some real advantage from our study. We may begin by a short survey of the general lines of development of Greek fiction, for though a literary pedigree may be as hard to prove as a canine, no work of art of any sort can help in some measure betraying the environment in which it was produced, and something of the processes by which that stage has been reached. At the same time, the author's individuality must be recognised. To take a modern example, it is clear that Paul and Virginia owes much to Daphnis and Chloe, and it is also clear that it owes a good deal to Robinson Crusoe, the book which, of all books, most influenced Bernardine de Saint-Pierre from youth to age. Yet Paul is agitated by questions that Daphnis never dreamt of, and which he himself could hardly have dreamt of if he had not been created in the age of Rousseau, to say nothing of his creator's friendship with Rousseau. Again, though the work has been pronounced to be in some degree even anti-Christian in its quiet ignoring of such matters as original sin and any necessity for redemption, and its implication that man is born good, if only society will not corrupt him, yet the difference between Paul and Daphnis, between Virginia and Chloe, is not explained without Christianity. We thus see that Longus, Defoe, Rousseau, and the Catholic Church have all contributed to this book, but perhaps, after all, we must recognize that Bernardine de Saint-Pierre contributed to it, or else we may have to pronounce Shakespeare a second-hand dramatist. We need not, however, write the history of literature to interpret Xanthope and Polyxena, or the life of Antony and their contemporary rivals. 
I would refer the reader to the admirable work of Chassang, Histoire de Roman, which has been highly praised by Sambuve, but not too highly, and the more special monograph of Erwin Rode, Der Griechische Roman. At the same time, clearness will be gained by giving a short sketch of the course of development that Greek fiction has followed. We may then classify our material very roughly in some five groups, premising that in many cases it would be difficult to say under which heading this or that work should more properly come, as the same book may share the characteristics of more than one class. Our five classes may then be taken as a. the tale of Troy and cognate legends of early Greece, b. the literary offspring of Plato in two families, the descendants of Atlantis and of Ur the Armenian, c. The history degenerating into the romance of Alexander with two great subdivisions, the tale of the hero and the tale of travel. D. The avowed love tale. And E. The fiction with an immediate national or religious purpose. Our first group need not detain us long, important as it is. The tale of Troy and the other tales of early Greece were first worked over by the tragic poets. They were systematized by collectors of mythology and violently rationalized into history by historians of the lower type, who tortured mythology to the detriment of poetry and without profit to history. They were altered and abused by rhetoricians and sophists like Philostratus in his Heroicus and the fabricators of Dares and Dictus, they were turned into pantomimes and danced all over the Roman world, and perhaps even outside it. They recaptured Europe in the Middle Ages, when Achilles and Hector disputed the popularity of Roland and Arthur. And finally, at the revival of learning, they took with new life a still deeper hold on a wider world, which they yet retain. Our second group we associate for convenience with the name of Plato. While some took Atlantis for a real country, others saw more clearly that, as Stradbo wittily says, its creator destroyed it, just as the poets did the wall of the Greeks. Real or imaginary, it was a fruitful example, and the seas of the world, or rather the parts outside the world, were dotted with ideal communities on happy islands, which, alas, fled further and further away with the growth of geography. As might be expected, these lands appeared most often when the existing countries were labouring under unhappy conditions. At a later day, and this is more important for our present purpose, when the centre of gravity and philosophy had shifted from the state to the individual, a new type of utopia displaces the old, the utopia of happy thinkers who live an ideal life of contemplation without any government at all, without a state or social questions, and free from all disquieting foreign or domestic policies. The book on the contemplative life attributed, though wrongly, to Philo the Jew is an example of this. It describes the Therapoite, who lived an ascetic life together in large numbers a little way out of Alexandria, so successfully avoiding attention that no geographer, traveller or philosopher ever found them except in the novel. The story of Ur the Armenian was much derided by the Epicureans, but it had a great influence. Cicero imitated it in his Dream of Scipio, which in its turn produced Macrobius's commentary, a book much used in the Middle Ages. Plutarch twice copied it in his vision of Timarchus in the De Genio Socrates and his story of the trance of Vespasius, the Serra Nominum Vindicta, the latter, according to Archbishop Trench, being not altogether unworthy to stand beside Plato's Ur. How far these and similar works may have influenced the authors of such Christian apocalypses as those that bear the names of Peter and of Paul, 
or whether their inspiration is to be found exclusively in the Jewish thought that gave birth to such works as The Secrets of Enoch and The Apocalypse of Baruch, is not for me to determine. Our third group is perhaps more popular. The imagination of the Greek world seized on Alexander and his wars and his travels, embellished the tale with the marvels of mythology and the wonders of India, and in the end left very little of the real Alexander. Travellers' tales confused by faraway memories of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, by misunderstood monuments of Indian art or worship, by Brahmanical fables of all sorts attached themselves to Alexander, and the marvellous tale grew with every generation. The false Callisthenes' story of Alexander exists in some twenty manuscripts with corruptions and additions of every age. Now it was the Huns and now the Turks that the hero repelled. The book was done into Latin, into Armenian, into Arabic, and thence into Syriac and Persian, into Hebrew from the Latin, into Turkish, into Ethiopic, from the Arabic version of the Greek, and so forth. Elements were borrowed from it for other tales as freely as they were added to it, and it has recently been pointed out that Scottish history has been enriched from this source, for it seems that Bruce's speech at Bannockburn and his slaying of Bowen are practically identical even in language with portions of an early Scots translation of the old French romance of Alexander the Great. It is comforting that this discovery has been made by a Scotsman. The romance of the hero is of course older than Alexander. Mankind did not wait till his day for tales of adventure, witness the Odyssey, the Aetheste Rubinsonade, Again, the Cyropedia is a romance of a hero's education, and it is only in comparatively modern times that it began to pass for history. Romances portraying ideal types of character multiply with time. Cato was hardly dead before his party began to canonize him. Brutus, Cicero, and Fadius Gallus at once wrote Catus, and Caesar had to reply with an anti-Cato and set Hirtius to make another. But it was later, and in philosophy, that most of this work was done. Philostratus's life of Apollonius of Tyrana was undertaken at the command of an empress, Julia Augusta, because the life which she had wanted literary merit. Philostratus sends Apollonius everywhere with some errors of geography, and sets him to perform miracles and expose devils with no regard for sense or fact. Now he catches a satyr asleep, now he shows a young man that his sweetheart is an empusa, intent on sucking his blood. It has been supposed that this work was meant to counteract the Gospels, but it soars away from them into a rarefied atmosphere of new Pythagoreanism, of mystic asceticism. The real contrast is with Socrates, Chasang says, not with Christ. Porphyry, in a somewhat similar spirit, wrote a life of Pythagoras, and even in the life of his own master, Plotinus, sees fit, alongside of lists of his works, to introduce interviews with demons and gods called up by magic. This characteristic introduction of the magical into biography must be remembered when we are dealing with the lives of the saints, for it is not peculiar to them. Indeed, it is often less noticeable there than in pagan works. In some measure we may take Lucian's story of the ingenious false prophet Alexander and his god reincarnated in a snake as a reaction at once against magic and prophet. The romance of travel was pushed beyond all reason till Things Beyond Thule, a reference to the romance of Antonius Diogenes, was a byword for an impossible story. Ethiopians and Indians, and especially Brahmins, were the stock-in-trade of this kind of writing, along with big-eared men, dog-headed and one-eyed men, who reappeared in Sir John Mandeville. 
Lucian, in his True History, parodies this class of fiction, naming as his great models Stesius and Iambulus, and above all Homer's Odysseus, who is their leader and teacher in this nonsense. Anticipating Jules Verne, he goes from the earth to the moon and travels probably ten thousand leagues under the sea, perhaps with more comfort than the Frenchman's heroes, for he finds a large island inside a big fish. Incidentally, he reaches the islands of the blessed and meets Homer, who writes him a poem, and Odysseus, who gives him a message for Calypso. There is not, as in Gulliver, any special satire against society in this piece, except the general satire against the established practice of lying that marks philosophers no doubt a fling at the utopia-makers. Our fourth class is the love-tale. Rode has traced its antecedents to local legends and popular tales, treated and modified by the writers of Alexandria, and preserving much of their style, not without traces of oriental influences. Such tales of Miletus were early popular and early won a bad name. It is notorious how many of them were found in the loot of Crassus's camp by the Parthenians in 53 BC. They continued to be written anew for many centuries, sometimes in the form of letters. One of them is readily accessible to the English reader in Pericles, Prince of Tyre. This was originally a Greek romance written perhaps in the 3rd century, worked over by a Latin perhaps in the 7th, who confused it, adding the story of King Antiochus, which has singularly little connection with the rest, some more or less Christian reflections and some Latin riddles. It passed into the Gesta Romanorum, and was done into English verse by Gower, and incurred the censure of Chaucer. But certainly no word, nay writeth he, of Tilliquick and Sample of Canus, that loved her own brother sinfully, of switch-cursed stories, I say, fie, or else of Tyro Apollonius, of switch unkind abominations, nay, I would noon rehearse, if that I may." Shakespeare turns Apollonius into Pericles, but holds fairly closely to the old tale's incidents. It is a strange feature about this class of tale that, while the episodes are often extremely indecent, the character of the heroine, sometimes by accident only, but generally of her set design, is kept stainlessly pure. She is invariably a beautiful doll who wakens the most unfortunate passions by her beauty. It may be that this preservation of her chastity survives from older days before the sophists and stylists took the romance in hand, days when it was a tale told among the common people with a preference for bourgeois virtue, which was foreign to the goddesses and princesses of legend. Nonetheless, serious people frowned on this class of books, and Julian forbade his priests to read them. Our fifth class, while still fiction, is of rather a different character. I group here anecdotes which swell into imaginary episodes of history for a purpose. Josephus quotes an old tale of a most friendly interview between Alexander the Great and the Jewish high priest, invented as a document to support national claims. Such devices were not unknown to the Romans, and later on were revived with great effects in the donation of Constantine and the false decretals. Of course, these are forgeries, but there are other productions surely meriting a less severe name. There is a great deal of Jewish apocalyptic writing, every book bearing the name of some great worthy of the past who did not write it. Their object was to justify the ways of God to men, and to explain why good and evil fall to men, as it seems without distinction of vice and virtue, and above all, why the nation, God's chosen people, the righteous people, fared so ill. Enoch is made to prophesy and see into things invisible in order to encourage the writer's contemporaries to faith and courage. 
Antiquity was not very severe, as a rule, in the domain of criticism, and saw nothing morally questionable in attributing a document to a great name to secure its reaching its goal. The Book of Enoch had a wide influence not only on other similar literature, but on some of the New Testament writers. Among the heathen, poems reputed to be by Orpheus were circulated at a late date, and abundance of oracles were invented by Jew and Christian for the Sibyl, but as these are in verse, we perhaps need not further consider them. These, then, are our five classes. They are not mutually exclusive, for the Greek romance of love, as we have it today, has elements of the romance of travel and perhaps even of the utopia. Nor are they quite comprehensive enough, for it would be hard to set down in any one of them the Latin golden ass of Apuleius, and still harder the book of Petronius Arbiter. But after all, these are both avowedly medleys, and parts of his work Apuleius drew, he says, from Milesian tales. What of Cupid and Psyche? Where does it come? Myth, parable, or fairy tale? Which is it? Eventually, Greek romance and literature generally fell into the hands of sophists and rhetoricians. We may say this happened under Roman rule, recent discoveries showing that the erotic novel as we know it was already in full bloom in the first century. Rhetoric pervaded everything. Romances, poets, emperors, and fathers of the church are all tinged with it. The sermon of the Christian preacher was called by the same name as the declamation of the rhetorician, homilia, logos, and indeed was modelled after it. East and West, Roman and Greek, felt the effects of the rhetorical school. Synesius was a great admirer of Dio Chrysostom, the prince of rhetorical sophists, but he draws a distinction between his rhetorical and his political declamations. In the former, he says, Dio holds his head high and gives himself airs, like the peacock turning round to look at itself. He seems delighted with the charms of his discourse, as if this were his only aim, as if his end were grace of expression. This attitude of the peacock, acute self-consciousness, tends to spoil every production of the rhetorical schools, including the novels. Style is the first thing, and often the last, style so overdone that in the end it is deplorable. Fine phrases are stolen, pretty words hunted up, scraps of poetry culled from every age of poets, and all are woven together into a patchwork of preciousness. The main thing is to display the author's cleverness, and he tries to do this by descriptions of every kind. Yet while they were pilfering from Homer's vocabulary, the sophists never learnt why he did not describe Helen, for example, though her beauty was the base of his whole story. Physical beauty is the outcome of a combination of a large number of elements, all taking effect at once. The painter can therefore reproduce it, but not the poet. The poet can make a list of some or all of these elements, but he cannot coordinate them, nor can the rhetorician do more. His list can no more produce the effect of beauty than a series of labelled and stoppered bottles full of simple chemical substances ranged along a laboratory shelf can be said to represent some highly complicated compound of them all. If it is not a human being, it is a scene, a landscape that is described, or the picture of one. Thus Achilles Tatius begins his novel with a description of a picture of Europa and the bull. Europa's the picture, the Phoenicians the sea, Sidon's the land, on the land a meadow, and a troop of maidens, in the sea a bull was swimming, and on his back a fair maiden sat, sailing to Crete on the bull. With many flowers bloomed the meadow, and with them was mingled an array, phalanx, of trees and shrubs, close together the trees, intermingled their leaves, the branches joined their leaves, and thus the thickness of the leaves was to the flowers a roof. 
the artist had painted under the leaves the shade also, and the sun gently strayed over the meadow in patches, so far as the painter opened the overarching of the leafy foliage. The whole meadow and enclosure walled about. The beds of flowers grew in rows under the leaves of the shrubs, narcissus and roses and myrtles. And water ran through the midst of the meadow in the picture, some springing up from the earth below, some poured about the flowers and the shrubs. And a field waterer had been painted with a mattock in his hand, bending over one ditch and opening a way for the water. This figure is borrowed from Homer, Iliad 21, 257, as a number of verbal coincidences plainly show, and he adds the one touch of life to the picture. For the rest, it is conventional, and so it always is. The criticism Bernardine de Saint-Pierre passed on travellers' descriptions will do for those of the sophists. They are as barren as a geographical map. Hindustan resembles Europe. There is no character in it. Compare Atlanta's cave in the Arcadian bush. There is, of course, ivy about it, and ivy in the trees, crocuses in the soft and deep grass, and hyacinth and many other hues of flowers, not only as a feast for the vision, but their fragrance seized the air around, etc. Laurels there were many, and vines growing before the cave showed the labour of Atlanta. Continuous and never-failing waters, fair to see and cold, to judge by touch and learn by taste, flowed plenteous and ungrudging, convenient for the watering of the trees, and the spot was full of charms, making an austere and modest chamber for the maiden. Compare again a livelier document, Senecius's letter to his brother, Epistle 114, for another scene of flower and tree. Sometimes the novelists will adorn their stories with descriptions of natural marvels. Here is Achilles Tatius on the hippopotamus, a most appropriate animal for a love tale, but it comes in very gracefully. Charmides, a military officer, invites Hero and Heroine, who have just been rescued by him, to inspect the beast newly killed by his men. The horse of the Nile, the Egyptians call it, and it is a horse, as its name implies, in regard to belly and feet, except that it splits the hoof. In size about the biggest ox, its tail short and bare of hair, like the rest of its body also, its head round, not small, its cheeks like a horse's, its nostril gaping wide and breathing fiery smoke as from a fount of fire, its chin broad as its cheek, its mouth opens back to its eyebrows, its canine teeth are curved in shape and place like a horse's but three times the size. 4.2. The reader should now have no difficulty in recognising the beast. From the hippopotamus, it is but a step to the elephant, 200, 4 and 5, and not very far to the crocodile, 119. It will be seen that the luckless lovers are in Egypt, an almost inevitable country for lovers. Sometimes the novelist prefers magic to nature. In the love tales, the magic is generally slight, an oracle perhaps at most, but in lives of holy men there is plenty of it, demons, enchantments, transportations, and so forth. How far Apuleius's golden ass begins by being gently satirical only, I cannot say, but it does not so end. The whole basis of the tale is magic, and if in some of the episodes the author is making fun of it, he certainly had to stand his trial on a charge of using magic. The heathen revival of the 2nd and 3rd centuries was in fact largely based on magic, a point not always realised. If comment be needed, Lucian's amusing dialogue called The Lover of Falsehood may be read, a beautiful collection of ghost stories and enchantments. If Lucian scoffed and the devout trembled, the rhetorician was cool and added magic to his other themes for decoration. Descriptions of emotions delight the school. Achilles, in particular, enjoys describing their psychology, explaining tears or the effect of anger on the feelings. 
Longus is less clever but more successful if still rhetorical, and traces the gradual growth of love in Daphnis and Chloe with great delicacy, according to St. Beauve, but perhaps to say this one must be devoted to Paul and Virginia. Summing up then, we may say that the rhetorical novelist tries to capture us by his exhibitions of cleverness, his descriptions, his general brilliance, but he does not move us or convince us. The reason is that, after all, he is out of touch with life and reality. His scenes are unreal and conventional, never drawn from nature but from books. His figures are unreal too, dolls, puppets, automata. The hero and the heroine, the gentlemanly brigand, the too susceptible captain, the pirate, are all lifeless, none realised. They have no individuality, no distinctive character. Their only motive is what their creator calls love, which is too good a name for it. With every newcomer to the scene, the heroine is in fresh danger. But even with this one motive or incentive, no legitimate action ever takes place. There are no real consequences of anything. Everything is chance. Sometimes an oracle, sometimes a dream starts things, and then begins a wild series of mechanical adventures. Pirates, storms, robbers, slavery, separation, murder, never real murder, and everything to harass hero, heroine, and reader. One thing is always certain. What will happen next is beyond conjecture, but in the end it will not matter, for nothing ever comes of threatening danger except delay. It should not be so, but the fortuitous interference of providence, to quote Professor Mahaffey's Irish judge, is invariable, and hero and heroine are rescued for the next mishap. Once more, cries Xenophon's heroine, once more pirates and sea, once more am I our captive. Of course she is, and she may expect to lose her lover and follow him, or be pursued by him over land and sea, coming within a hair's breadth of meeting him, but never achieving it, till the last book, when, as Rhodes says, one is glad to find them accidentally meeting, so that the marionettes can be laid back in the box. End of Greek and Early Christian Novels, Part 1, by T. R. Glover